Shia, when was the last time you saw a drone? Oh, I see drones all the time. I live in San Francisco. Do you pay them any mind? Like, do they bother you in any way? Occasionally they do. I mean, usually I just sort of take notice and, and sort of chuckle to myself. But once in a while, especially in if I'm in like an outdoors environment, I'm at a park or I'm, on, I'm at the beach or something like that, then they, they bug me a little bit. What about you? Oh, I hate them. I hate them so much. I get their utility. And when I see like a cool drone shot in a movie, I know that it came from a drone and that the technology has offered something good. But I've been in a couple places recently where drones have bothered me so much. Um, One time recently in July, I was camping on this isolated island in the Connecticut River. And there's nobody around, completely silent. My wife and I thought we had the whole place to ourselves. And all of a sudden, this buzzing sound just came over the trees, and it started buzzing around the island. And a drone came up to us while we were swimming. We were sitting there completely isolated, and this drone started hovering over us. I got so mad. I started yelling at it. I gave it the middle finger. I didn't know where it was coming from. And the idea that we could be in this isolated spot with this annoying, buzzing drone with probably a camera on it hovering over us bothered me so deeply to my core. I have this image in my head now of, of like a, a Peanuts comic strip with you just like trying to find some peace and quiet. And everywhere you go, you <laughs> think you're like sitting down to like have a quiet meditative moment and a drone shows up. Oh my God, that's so good. <laughs> so <laughs> magnify this, right? Like imagine if you're camping on the beach and someone's personal electric airplane pod just comes over the horizon and it hovers over you and the passengers stare down at you from this big glass dome and then boom take off it sounds like ufo fiction right i don't know about the hovering part and staring at you but we could see electric pods kind of buzzing around in places that we never imagined before not that far from where people are standing and sitting and playing we may not actually be that far from this future. And there are a lot of really positive impacts too. So we want to weigh those two things. Coming up this episode, the promise and peril of electric aviation. The future really is close. Before we climb into the cockpit, a word about our sponsor, Wonder Capital. Do you want to invest in solar? Do you need investment in your solar project? Wonder Capital has you covered for both Wonder has a software platform that connects individual investors and Wall Street banks to solar projects, making commercial solar easier and cheaper. Find out more at wondercapital.com slash GTM. That's Wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM. And hey, if you find yourself needing some combiner boxes, junction boxes, inline fuses, or monitoring software, we all need those, right? There's only one place to turn, Shoals Technologies Group. Shoals designs the best equipment, in the business for solar and storage projects. So make your project the best it can be with Shoals, S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Greentech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome. I'm joined by Shail Khan. He's the Senior VP of Research and Strategy at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shail. Hello, Stephen. So uh, you guys are evaluating a ton of different companies and technologies over there at your firm. Are electric airplanes one of them? 
Uh, you know, we haven't actually looked a whole lot at electric airplanes yet, though I recently read an article by another energy VC uh, that made me think that maybe I should. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And we've got another venture capitalist and clean tech veteran in the house who is going to help school us on electric aviation. He's been thinking a lot about this subject. It is Andrew Beebe, the managing director at Obvious Ventures. Andrew, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. So... We're going to dive into electric aviation. We're going to mostly focus on vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, but we'll also talk about hybrid electric airplanes as well. Um, So before we get to the topic at hand, Andrew, can you just describe your investment thesis and portfolio over at Obvious Ventures? What does world positive investing mean? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, Look, we are a very diversified venture fund and focus on a number of different areas uh, spanning food, fintech, healthcare, education, as well as sustainable systems and areas that people, particularly your listeners, may know more commonly as clean tech, but we think of it a little bit more broadly in mobility, resources, and building systems and smart cities. So we have um, 53 companies in the portfolio. We are generally very early stage investors and have worked a lot in the energy space with companies like Mosaic and Cyton, as well as mobility space with companies like Proterra on the ground focused on electric buses. So I'm just curious for our listeners' benefit, Shale, where does that, like where does a firm like Obvious Ventures stack up in in the stage of investing that a firm like Energy Impact Partners might focus on? So generally speaking, we're, we're probably usually later stage investors than than Andrew and Obvious are. We tend to invest in sort of lar- late or large Series A investments or more often later Series B or C, and we tend to write, I think, larger checks. But there are definitely exceptions to that, one obvious exception being Mosaic, where uh, we share an investment with Obvious proudly. Um, or I, Proterra would be another example where I think, Andrew, you guys invested relatively recently in their relatively late-stage company. So, I, you know, it... Uh, I think there's some overlap, but but more often than not, we're probably a little later in the game. Okay, so you guys compete as some of the best communicators in this industry. Both of you are fantastic writers. Shale, you've always written some excellent stuff for GTM. And uh, Andrew, you have also written a bunch of really cool stuff on your Medium page for the firm. And most recently, we cross-posted one of your pieces written with uh, your VP, Joe Blair, um, which outlined the thesis on electric airplanes. It's kind of a roadmap for what needs to happen to make them a reality and an overview of a few companies. Really great piece, um, very thought-provoking. So when you published it, Shale immediately sent me an email. I was like, okay, we need to talk about electric airplanes. Shale, I'm just curious, what grabbed you about the subject and the way that, that Andrew wrote about it? Well, you know, I mean, I think electric airplanes are one of those things that like capture the imagination relatively easily, especially because as I'm sure we'll talk about, like a lot of the first wave of what seem like they're the likely to come electric airplanes also come with them this like totally different mode of transportation, as you said before, Stephen, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. So it's sort of like exciting in principle and that the real question uh, that I think has been hanging out there for a long time is like, when will the technology be there to do this? When will this actually become both uh, plausible from a technical standpoint and economic? And I thought Andrew's piece did a really good job of laying out, one, a, a pretty strong case that this is coming 
um, that I want to talk about under what time frame. And two, I think a pretty sober assessment of like what we have to do to get from here today, where there's basically no electric aviation, to there, you know, long in the future when it becomes ubiquitous. And so there's some interesting steps in between that I thought were well laid out. So, Andrew, maybe you can start us off by just giving us kind of the state of the landscape today. Do we have electric planes? Are they operating anywhere at any scale? What does it look like? Yeah, no, thanks. I think that framing is really important here. Let me say a couple of things. First of all, what, what we really set out to write about and is critical in our overall thesis is a piece about the the future of flight, not just electric airplanes, and I'm sure you guys meant broadly um, electric airplanes and the ecosystem around them, but we felt like it was a, a perfect time to look at are we at a inflection point and how we're going to move humans and goods around the world in the future. And so the, I would not actually start at the present day. I would start maybe 10 years ago and say that electric flight has already arrived. Um, people are very familiar with it when you think about what it means to fly. And the first are drones, um, drones, quadcopter drones, sort of fun drones you might get annoyed by hearing or seeing from in your neighborhood or in the, in the local park, have been flying now for some time pretty successfully. And if anyone's seen the halftime shows at the Super Bowl or football games that Intel or others put on, we see extraordinary capabilities with um, quadcopters and um, those kinds of consumer drones. So uh, it's already a big business. It's just coming in an unmanned uh, form. The other piece of that or the other side of that coin is military um, UAVs, and they've been flying with frightening success for some time as well. And these are much, much bigger vehicles. They are, in fact, planes uh, that are flying without pilots, usually not electric, uh, but certainly autonomously or with teleoperations. And and so I think we have at least some of the original building blocks have been in place for some time. And now we're starting to see a couple of other building blocks show up. So they include energy storage, software, and sensors. And when you combine that with some of the basic um, propeller technology and quadcopter capabilities of consumer drones, you start to sketch out the corners of what is a very, very clear roadmap. So the the quadcopters, right? Those are really noisy. Uh, they're super buzzy. Are we talking about technologies that are like a dramatic improvement on that technology? Because when I think of drones, I don't I think they're cool, but I definitely kind of get annoyed by them. Are we talking about just bigger versions of those drones, or are they fundamentally different types of uh, vertical and takeoff and landing aircraft? Well, uh, if we had a <laughs> if we had a five hour segment um, to talk about all these things, I think we could break it down into a whole bunch of different categories. Wait, this wasn't on your calendar for five hours. I doubt it's going to be on anybody else's calendar for five hours, but uh, it's a multi-segment um, discussion that companies like Zipline and others are already in the market. They're delivering blood in Africa with drones that are fixed wing, um, very quiet and travel very long distances autonomously or semi-autonomously, but certainly without pilots. Um, I think maybe the best thing to do is constrain this discussion 
around um, vertical takeoff and landing electric jets. We have a particular experience level just because of our investment in Lilium, uh, but there are a number of people vying for that title of air taxi or um, building to building intracity, intercity uh, movement of people, and in some cases goods, but not people. And to answer your question, in that case, there's a variant. Um, there are some that are literally just larger, you know, they technically they might dispute this a little bit, but larger versions of consumer drones. And then in other cases like Lilium, and they have a competitor called Joby, these are vehicles that um, oftentimes have some sort of fixed wing and a transition capability. So they'll rise up in a vertical way, but then transition into flight. And flight is the basic concept that you're actually uh, at least gliding in some ways or moving with the assistance of a wing, which makes you much, much more efficient in flight. And those vehicles um, face a number of challenges around energy density, but less uh, fewer challenges around their actual ability to stay aloft and stay stable as they move and move with speed. A lot of those problems have been solved. One of the few, um, well, we believe they've been solved. We'll see as they get into flight. Um, one of the differentiations that you will see is sound. Uh, different people have different sound profiles, but for the most part, people are working hard to make sure that these vehicles sound uh, not louder than say a motorcycle in a street or maybe even just a scooter in the street. But certainly the, the apt comparison is helicopters and they will be much, much less noisy than a helicopter. So you've alluded a couple of times to what, based on my minimal understanding of, uh, of electric airplanes and the challenges they're in, I thought was the biggest problem, which was you talked about energy storage originally, and then you just mentioned energy density. So I read a stat not long ago that jet fuel yields like 43 times more energy than the equivalent mass of sort of today's state-of-the-art lithium-ion batteries. So is it that, you know, battery density or energy density of batteries has been improving? Are we already at the point or do we have like clear line of sight to the point where the batteries are energy dense enough to you know, propel humans from place to place and in a small plane like this, or does it require some kind of new battery chemistry technology improvement that doesn't exist yet? We have looked at many of these different vehicle companies and technology companies, and they're in the analysis of whether these things will fly successfully. Um, and as, as specified, we are at least benefited from one of the challenges facing the industry, which is they need to launch these vehicles with maybe not off the shelf technology, but technology that is very well characterized and proven in the sense that you don't get to go to the FAA or EASA in Europe or other certifying bodies and say, hey, we're going to build this aircraft and give us three years for this last little battery part and we'll come back to you and sort of slot in the final spec at the end. Uh, that's difficult to do with cars. It's impossible to do with uh, the FAA or other certifying bodies. And so these companies are being built on the backs of today's at least battery technology for the most part. And what that means is um, we are not banking on unknown or even newish uh, battery chemistries or different types of battery technology. We are banking on 
effectively, let's say, you know, broadly speaking, I think the industry is buying the same kinds of cells and battery packs that Tesla uh, built their business on originally to figure out the first vehicles that will fly. And that's created constraints around distance and cargo, et cetera. But at least they are very well characterized systems. Okay. So given that, then, you know, these companies that you mentioned, you guys have an investment in Lilium, there's Joby, there's a couple others that you mentioned in the piece as well that have, have raised a lot of money. Airbus has its own solution. Like all these companies believe that at least on paper with commercially available lithium ion technology with whatever tweaks they're going to make to it that, you know, they'll be able to transport people uh, within some, you know, relatively short defined period of time. Uh, that's right. I mean, some of them, just to be specific, some of them are working on cargo only um, and others are working on people. You know, Lillian has said publicly, and I think Joby has as well, that they're focused on um, air taxis for people. And Uber Elevate is a uh, Uber driven program to try and find more and more vehicle providers to offer um, different configurations for human transport. Got it. So, okay, so let's focus on the people part of this then and assume that uh, the technology does work. I mean, you alluded to sort of the limitations that energy density provides, at least for a while, largely being around the amount of cargo that you can transport and how far you can transport it. So as this stuff starts to arrive, what is the mode of transportation that we should expect them to be replacing? Is it, you know, an Uber ride? Is that what this would displace? Is it a helicopter ride? Or how do you think about that? I think it's a great question and one that results in uh, an off-ramp for a lot of people as they just logically apply Occam's razor and try and figure out, wait, is this ever going to work? Could a, you know, could a massive quadcopter just come down and pick me up on a street corner? Because the answer is no, it can't. Uh, are we going to have these little vertiports on every rooftop I, I think probably not. So um, while some people are working on building to building Uber replacement kind of concepts, I believe that the first um, instance of these in the wild is going to be focused on traditionally what we might think of as helicopter or very long car ride um, uh, hired cars. So trips to airport, to and from airports to city centers. Um, trips across town or trips from San Jose to San Francisco. Here's the difference. These vehicles um, are very low cost to operate, hypothetically, just like an electric vehicle on the ground is much, much cheaper to operate than an internal combustion engine, these even more so. Helicopters have you know, massive part counts, 18,000 parts. They have to be rebuilt almost monthly when they're in high commercial operation because they are very, very complex machines and their pilots are extremely expensive pilots. They are the highest trade pilots, you know, uh, commercially at least in the world. So I imagine um, seeing a wholesale replacement of point to point helicopters and a massive expansion of that market because the cost will come down substantially. So imagine a trip from downtown Manhattan, West Side heliport out to JFK. It will take about 10 minutes and it could it, it can be priced as low as sixty dollars? Um, that that is a game changer. We don't have as many heliports in San Francisco, but when 
people understand the noise profiles to be much less than a helicopter, uh, I think we'll start to see them crop up. Well, I, I can, for one, cannot wait for this because my helicopter pad is a real pain in the ass to maintain. And I'll tell you, those helicopter rides for me to the airport are very expensive. Right. <laughs> your, your neighbors must hate it. Yeah. No, but this is a very important point because I think there's a lot of pushback about this concept because when we talk about vertical and takeoff and landing and we talk about electric aviation, people automatically go to flying urban transportation. These cars zipping around the city streets, uh, circumventing traditional public rights of way. And that worries a lot of people. And it does create a very confusing, messy future. What you're imagining, at least in the short term, or the medium term, is something that's a little cleaner, it sounds like. For sure. In the early uh, instances, it will simply be point-to-point um, -point, um, hubs, effectively, that are going back and forth very, very quickly from one location to another, like San Jose to San Francisco, which today, even on, a, on the uh, express train, is a very long trip. This can be a cheaper process, but can, uh, a faster process, but can also get you closer into a city center. But ultimately, there will be multiple nodes, and then you have a lot of flexibility. Another example is literally just opening up commute routes that, that don't exist today. So coming from um, the Central Valley of California into San Francisco, again, very, very quickly in something like 30, 30 minutes, 30, 40 minutes, depending on how far you're in, where today somebody would have to, in cases like Modesto or something, drive best case an hour to the end of a BART line and then another hour and a half to get into downtown San Francisco. So it can really transform the way people think about commutes. We would still use rail lines. We would still use uh, subways, but this is a supplemental tool that people can use to literally change the way they think about where they would live despite commuting into a city. You know, that uh, while we're thinking way out into the future, the the other place where you hear a similar line of reasoning is when people are talking about autonomous vehicles and how once we get to a you know fully autonomous world or a mostly autonomous world, how that creates does basically the same thing. It allows places that are not commutable today to become commutable, both because a bunch of autonomous vehicles are going to be smarter at working together and are not going to have as much traffic, so the actual drive time will be shorter. And because th if you're in an autonomous vehicle, your your period of commuting actually is um, productive time. You know, you can work or read or do yoga or whatever you're going to do. So is this just a sort of further extension of that? Like you can go even further than you could with an autonomous vehicle, or is this an alternative to that? So I, I think what you're going to see is autonomous vehicles will be um, in, in heavy use for short haul distances, and this will be supplemental to that to just make those distances longer. Um, remember, these two will very quickly become autonomous vehicles. Uh, I think if you talk to deep autonomy and vision and uh, detection, uh, collision detection, avoidance engineers, they'll tell you that it's easier to become autonomous in flight than it is on the ground. It sounds a little counterintuitive, but I, I think we'll find that autonomy, autonomy will probably show up in, in both on the ground and in the air at a similar time frame. So the impact for us here is that the, the ground trips will become cheaper in short distances because of the autonomy but the air trips will become much cheaper because of the removal of that very expensive pilot. 
I'm of two minds about this. So I love the idea of being able to live more rurally and then get to a downtown city very quickly or get to like a, a, a regional airport very quickly and get into the city. But I can't help but worry about this future that we're creating where people can spread out more. And of course, I love the idea of flexibility and I love living rurally. And so that flexibility is very appealing to me. But when everybody does it, we're starting to build out even more instead of up where a lot of experts think that we should be doing. We need more concentration of people in more cities. We need to build up in our buildings, up in our farming, everything. And so this changes the nature of how we construct our communities. And there are all these other potential environmental associated impacts. Curious what you think about that future that we're crafting. I guess, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at the future of cities and how communities, uh, really develop and, and will grow and thrive. And ultimately, my sense is that people are going to be driven to cities and, and verticalization of cities or density increases, not because urban planners have told them that's the way it should be, or even we as investors tell them that's the way it should be, but instead because of some happiness quotient. Uh, first, maybe just by necessity, I need to be closer to my job. But ultimately, they may ideally in a in a, I think, a better future, have the opportunity to make those choices based on what's bringing them the most happiness. So they may say, I'm going to move into that city despite having the op option of living in the Sierra foothills and taking a Lilium to work. I'm going to move into the city because I like the density. I like being closer to my family and friends. I like the educational opportunities that are afforded in a more dense environment, the food choices, et cetera. So I think all we're doing is creating um, – societal choice and access from an economic standpoint, making things more affordable to more people by lowering the costs of moving around while not bringing in, um, an environmental uh, cost on top of it. You've been, uh, I think you were one of the earlier ones to be like a public big proponent of the electrify everything, sort of, sort of mode of thinking um, as a as a climate solution or at least a partial climate solution you know and i think now that's sort of common wisdom just like your 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 baseline strategy for decarbonization is uh decarbonize electricity and then electrify everything how does this fit within that thinking i mean obviously uh you know air transportation is one of the last remaining frontiers for electrification but as we're talking about it i'm realizing that like what we're actually talking about right now is a pretty small niche within air transport. It's this little, it's like helicopter replacement, which I presume is not a big part of that. Do you think that in any kind of reasonable timeline after that, we're going to get to replacement of true long distance jets with electric, or is that so far off? It's, it's not worth thinking about. Yeah. I mean, look, first off, if you've been to Sao Paulo or you've been to Singapore, I mean, helicopters are, um, in use in great density in certain um, environments, and they are actually massive energy users and uh, and obviously very polluting. So there, you know, there, there would be real value in just transitioning that market. But um, there are two answers. One, I think, again, this is a, a, a very natural progression of the electrification of everything. Uh, electrified vehicles uh, have a great impact on the environment. Um, even without 100% renewables, but certainly with 100% renewables, 
they're also just better products. They are substantially better products. You talk to Proterra electric bus fleet managers, and they love them. They love operating them. They're proud to drive them. As more and more electric school buses uh, show up, parents are happy to put their kids on a bus that's not spewing diesel, right? These are, these are sort of no-brainers that we're going to look back 20 years from now and say, I can't believe we actually lit that stuff on fire and blew it up inside of a big you know, metal box in the front of that vehicle when we could have been using it for things like um, very carefully designed plastics or other petrochemicals that are quite valuable. So I think there's that transition is, is just logical and will happen. But the second part of your question about where do we go from here, um, when you look at jet fuel and air travel, obviously it's a massive impact um, on the carbon economy, and it's also had a tremendous impact on society on, on the positive side. And we want to be able to take advantage of that, but transition away from that environmental impact. And to that end, we have not invested in, but we certainly looked at many. You, you mentioned Zunum, but there are many companies uh, looking at the hybrid space. And I think we'll see those show up very soon. Obviously, United is using some biofuels already, which is interesting. But I do think we're going to see an increasing number of companies uh, literally just moving up the size scale, going from small commuter electric jets, fixed wing jets, uh, going small point to point, maybe from, let's say, you know, you can go from San Mateo instead of San Francisco, from small airport to small airport down in San, Santa Monica or Santa Barbara. And those those will be the first routes that open up. And then we will just move up the chain. We've also looked at there are, you know, there are companies working on long distance cargo flights uh, with large vehicles that are all electric, but go much, much slower. So there are interesting dynamics of getting planes aloft and then having them just move slowly in jet streams and in other ways um, still, you know, get from China to California in 25 hours instead of 11 um, these are interesting dynamics that wouldn't work with human passengers, but can certainly help in some other areas of air transit. Okay, so that brings us to the question of how and how fast will this stuff get rolled out? And you outline in your piece kind of a four-step process from crawl to fly. Can you explain what the crawl, walk, run fly scenario looks like in your eyes? Sure. Now, now I think we're, you know, in the highly speculative zone. So I'll just um, say that so I can take back the prognostications later. But uh, what, what I would say is that first things first, there are some, I think, fairly characterizable problems around getting the energy storage to prove that what we can do with off the shelf, um, what we think we can do is what we can do off the shelf with energy storage and then to get these vehicles up in the air and then, you know, um, make sure they're safe. And then ultimately, I, something I would say used to be an unknown and is getting increasingly sharp in focus is then certify them with the FAA and with the ASA. And that is, um, I think both of those organizations have come a long way and NASA is playing a role as well in helping to understand electric flight and then get these approved for safe use. That, that, will probably be the tall tent pole in the pathway to the first vehicles flying. So my guess for those first air taxis, uh, not, no comment about Lillian directly, but just broadly speaking, is that within four years, four to five years, we'll see them actually taking uh, passengers 
and doing it in, in a very different way, cost effectively and in a way that I think will surprise a lot of people in terms of the um, experience and the value that they see. The longer haul vehicles, uh, I think it's just really speculative uh, to understand whether an all electric longer haul vehicle can really get off the ground um, in the next decade. And then I think autonomy plays, you know, there, there are two other things that we didn't talk much about. One is autonomy, um, which I think will play a role in how these things become mass adopted because of cost. But then the other is um, uh, air traffic management and how we think about the software uh, and the different technologies and coordinating technologies to help manage not just all these vehicles, whether they're autonomous or not, but also all of the drones, which, again, autonomous or not, uh, don't have air traffic control capabilities because they are not speaking into a microphone um, and in some ways have more advanced capabilities. But those capabilities need to be coordinated in a centralized or at least um, universally distributed way. So on the blockchain, you're saying? <laughs> if you want to land, you have to uh, buy Bitcoin. <laughs> I knew it. All right, now I'm going to invest. Um, so it, let's say that you're wrong uh, and something goes wrong and, and, and this future does not materialize for, for some reason. What do you think the most re likely reason would be? Like if, if something stops this wave from coming and all of these companies turn out not to be able to deliver on their promise, what, what caused that? Well, I, I think it's fair to go back to batteries, and I think everyone has a, a, some very clear theses that make a lot of sense mathematically, and now we have to show the empirical data that in, in practice this is all working. And, you know, I would point to Tesla, who went through this and undersized or under spec their batteries uh, or oversized their batteries and under spec them in the documentation so that they could be very safe in terms of making sure that they could meet market expectations. Um, I think that those batteries have surprised a lot of people in terms of their resiliency and their lack of degradation. A lot of people were buying insurance and other things early on to make sure that they could um, give the battery back if it wasn't gonna work out. So we have to go through that cycle with flight. Um, I think the other big one is just this question of regulatory approval. No, no passenger, all electric uh, EV tolls have been commercially certified for public use. So that's that's the, the big question. There's a lot of um, signal that things are going well there and that these are going to get approved. But an example would be um, any catastrophic events of industry leaders during the initial test phases you know, could result in setbacks. They will certainly result in some perceptive setbacks in the industry. And I can tell you that everyone that I've worked with and, and talked to in the space is extraordinarily focused on safety and, and preventing that from happening, um, even just on the perception basis, because it's the, the negative implications are so profound for people having fear about getting into them. Right. I mean, there's enough news just from any time a Tesla crashes when it's on autopilot, you know, let alone if a plane crashed when it was uh, when it was, you know, one of the early especially autonomous, but forget autonomous, just electric planes. That's right. So you've been around the block many times. Um, 
you've you've ridden a number of waves up and down in this industry. You you know you understand the solar business inside and out. You understand the utility business. How excited are you for a technology like electric aviation or vertical takeoff and landing electric aviation compared to like more conventional renewable energies? two decades ago or a decade and a half ago. Like, where are we in the in the excitement and hype cycle and how transformative do you think these technologies are? And, you know, how, like, cautious are you as well? Look, I mean, at the risk of dating myself here, in, in 1998, when I started my first um, internet e-commerce company, my co-founders and I went out to Sand Hill Road and told them we were going to help small businesses get up and running on the internet. And they the response was generally... You guys seem like nice young guys, but, uh, you know, no one's ever going to put their credit card on the Internet. And, you know, Amazon had already launched. So, of course, people were already doing that. But that was the general perception. We ultimately did raise the money and people ultimately did put their credit cards on the Internet. In 2002, when I went to those same folks or in the same on the same road and looked for funding for a solar technology company, I was met with a lot of the same Responses, in fact, some of them famously said to me, venture capitalists just will never get comfortable doing solar as an industry. And um, they obviously changed their minds and an industry was born, scaled, and uh, I think now it's clearly reached a massive escape velocity. So um, we, you know, on all renewables, we've seen that transition from this is, you know, that classic, whether it was Virginia Woolf or Gandhi or whatever, you said, like, first they will laugh at you. You know, then ultimately they will fight you with everything they've got and then they will take it to be self-evident and they will say things to you like, well, of course you did an Internet startup in the late 90s. Everybody did. And we all knew where that was going to end up. And they say the same things about renewables now, like it was very clear, all those charts that just showed solar would go down to zero because there was no fuel cost and the same with wind. It was not clear then uh, because of perception and because of history I think we're going to see the same thing on this transition to electrification of everything. It will, in hindsight, look self-evident. It will, as we like to say, look obvious. And people will say, of course you did that. And of course you invested in those. It was so clear that that's where everything was going. We saw it on the ground first with electric vehicles. Um, I think there are many people who still don't believe that we are moving into that transition once you pass 1% where the ramp really starts, 1% penetration. Uh, we certainly believe that we are. I think electric flight will go down that exact same path. And to answer your question directly, I mean, because of that, I'm very, very excited about it. I'm excited that it's going to happen, but I'm also excited that a lot of people are not yet convinced it will. Because in our world of venture capital investing, it's that arbitrage between those who believe and those that don't, where real upside is realized. Though to be to be fair, uh, though it is true that of it was true of the internet in 1998, it was true of solar in the early 2000s. Um, many of those investors who did invest in those times lost their shirts too. So I mean, the, the market happened, but doesn't mean everybody makes money. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, we always say we look at four T's: timing, tech, team, and TAM. You know, total addressable market. And honestly, probably, I think the hardest T is timing um, that, you know, so we spend a lot of time looking at TAM and team. Great entrepreneurs going after massive markets are easier to at least uh, sit down and characterize and understand up front than timing. 
So we think we have found some of the best entrepreneurs in the electric flight space. We think the TAM is absolutely massive, but the timing could be challenging. Andrew Beebe is the managing director at Obvious Ventures. He's a, a veteran entrepreneur and a cleantech veteran, and he wrote an awesome piece on Medium and cross-posted over at GTM on electric aviation. So go check that out and read all his other stuff. Uh, Andrew, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks, guys. All right, that does it for the show, folks. Shale, good conversation. Are you any more or less convinced about electric aviation? Uh, I think I'm a little bit more convinced that it's coming, but I still think it's going to be a relatively long time horizon. And I don't still fully understand the improvements in battery technology that are required in order to make this a reality. It sounds like there are a bunch of companies that think it's it's real on the horizon, um, but I need to I need to dig in there a little more. Totally agree. And Andrew was upfront about batteries being one of the biggest limitations. Now, what about my dark scenario I painted up front? Do you think we'll face a time when Stephen Lacey's camping on the beach and these, you know, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft come over and watch me swim in my skivvies? Well, perhaps this is uh, naive optimism, but but I do think that we will uh, create rules and regulations to avoid that situation generally. You know, I, I don't. I don't know if it'll never happen, but I think that um, I think the FAA and, and all the other regulatory bodies that Andrew mentioned are are going to be grappling with this for they'll have a long time to do it because we're going to we're going to have a long time while we know this is coming. Um, and, and I have faith that they can figure out a way to enable the benefits of, you know, electric transportation and all these new technologies without the worst of the downsides. Mm hmm. Gosh, I thought you were going to say, maybe this is naive optimism, but I think in the future there will be an app so that you can track your flight to find Steven and figure out where he's swimming so you can go and watch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, will it happen to most people? No. Will it happen to you? Definitely. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. I hope no one out there is designing that right now. I know we have a lot of smart people who listen to this podcast. And if you're even a smarter, you'll send this on to your intelligent friends and family and colleagues and tell them to listen to this podcast too uh there are a lot of investors out there who don't understand this stuff well guess what we're trying to understand it and help them as well so pass it along to another vc that you you like um give us a rating on apple podcasts listen to us on google podcasts find us on stitcher you know everywhere you get podcasts we say it every time but we are everywhere Thanks for listening. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media.